Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. And we're here to talk about, you know, it's about time. (laughs) We talk about time, isn't it? It's like that we, old, uh, what are we talking about, Riley? I don't know. It's a good thing we don't title these things until after we've recorded them, huh? We've got a provisional title. We want to talk about time. We want to talk about being present, present moment awareness, being in the now. Let's talk about this. Let's see if we can figure it out. But, you know, you can't just pass by your little intro of, of it's about time without hearkening back to the old Mormon videos, right? Yeah. I love those. Family. Isn't it about time? I love those. <laughs> it is. It's about time. And so that's part of this conversation, right? Is making time for what matters. Yeah. And it, as, the more, as the more we've discussed this, I'm thinking, but what matters to me doesn't matter to you and vice versa. And I mean, there's obviously community interests in a lot of things and those tend to have general mass appeal, but there's, there's a lot of individuality that you can express in this what matters. Yeah. And, you know, part of this idea of isn't it about time, because there's a little double entendre there, right, is not just, you know, spending time with family, but doing it now. Right, yeah. Not procrastinating. A lot of those videos, they would always show, like, some little six- or seven-year-old girl coming up to dad who's, you know, quote-unquote busy uh, with whatever. And it's, it's usually the dad, you know, which probably for good reason. But, you know, whether he was reading a paper or whether he was doing some work or whatever the case may be, it was always uh, an inconvenient thing to give your time, but always portrayed as being worthwhile. I can really relate to that. And it's funny because my, my uh, role at home as a full-time stay-at-home homeschool dad is really different than was my role out in the workplace as a professor, you know, teaching at a couple of colleges and commuting and all that. And when my wife was a full-time stay-at-home homeschool mom. And so, yeah, but there's still, there's no, the grass is always greener on the other side in some sense, right? And it's funny how uh, there have been thoughts that I've had, uh, or there, there are thoughts that I had before my wife and I reversed roles in some sense. And and thoughts that she had and comments that come up. It's funny to see how they come up in reverse now. And, and it's just ironic. You know, it's, it's funny because you, you get this sense of, I don't know, it's like, do, do you not remember what this was like? Do I not remember what that was like or, or whatever, you know? It's kind of fun. Yeah, the situation you're in tends to determine a lot of what you value and, and maybe what you devalue in other people. Um, I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine at lunch today who said a lot of the criticism that 
you know, one person gives to another, where it's a, whether it's like a parent to a kid or a spouse to another spouse is, is really just a manifestation of some kind of insecurity. And, and the thing that they're highlighting or bringing to the attention of the other person is something they're good at, but they're doing that to mask something maybe they're not good at. And, and so you're, you're hinting to it that there's values that are behind our judgments, right? Yeah. Our judgments are according to our own values. And so our values can differ. And of course, when it comes to our children, we're, we're instilling our values. And then, you know, part of this conversation really is, are we, are we instilling our values? Is that something we're doing intentionally? If we're not doing it intentionally, do we mean to do it? What are we doing with our time? Are we, are we intentional, right? Are we noticing? Are we contemplative? about our time. And I'm not talking about, you know, being able to set aside time to, to meditate for hours to think about these things. I'm talking about present moment awareness. And, and we can also expand this conversation out to a lifetime, right? There's, there's a time and a season for everything under the sun, the scriptures tell us. And, and there's this sense of, you know, thinking about our values in terms of a lifetime. And it reminds me of what, it, what it's like at the end of the year, you know, when we think, okay, it's a new year, I've got to think about my values, I've got to think about my goals, where am I going with my life, that kind of thing. We don't have to wait till the end of the year to do that. Yeah. We can do that anytime. Yeah, too often I think those, you know, internal evaluations come from a place of desperation. Like, oh, I've really been, you know, slacking off on this, that, or the other, and so I, I need to make this change, and it just so happens we've got a new year, and so ha I have an excuse to do it, where... I think what you're possibly referring to is is taking a different view of it and saying, well, what do I want out of my life? And then making those those value assessments ahead of time so that the outcomes match your values. Yeah. I've met some people, Riley, uh, a couple of people come readily to mind uh, who, you know, younger than I am who really seem to have exactly where they're going figured out. And boy, that makes a big difference. You know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily have that. You can see where they've got it all mapped out and they're, they're doing the things, whatever it is that they need to do to get where they want to go. And, and so there's obviously a benefit to this and it's, and it's an important skill to learn, you know, it's because it's going to be an important part of our happiness to reach our values. And, and of course, well, of course that is as long as they're correct values, I, I always think about the story of the Great Gatsby when I think about pursuing our values because the Great Gatsby sadly pursues values that are, are you know, what is a value? It's something that we act to, to obtain or to keep. If we, if we have it, we want to keep it. If we don't have it, we want to get it. And that's how we know it's a value. And so he's trying to get the girl. And that doesn't really work out for him in terms of well, in one sense, I guess he doesn't get the girl. In another sense, it just he finds out in the end that his values were misplaced, right? At least we do. Or there was like a misalignment between his actions and his values. Well, that's another conversation, right? That That's an important conversation for us to have too with ourselves is, are my actions in alignment with our value? And it's, it speaks to this issue that you mentioned about judging other people, right? It, we can't judge other people based on our values meaning look at their actions and think, well, look at what they're doing. That That's a waste of time. Well, it depends. It depends on what they're trying to get done, right? We don't know what they're doing. And I think in terms of, for example, something like spending a lot of time on social media, this can be a problem. It can be a problem not, no matter what your values are. If you're not 
you know, considering the the whole big picture, right? But it, we don't even know. It, it depends on what you're doing there too, right? So a lot of the things that we can use where we can spend our time, they can be beneficial depending maybe on how we use them. There's that too, right? Yeah, I had a former coworker whose son was a big time gamer, video gamer. And he used to tell his son all the time, oh, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your time, you're wasting your time. Well, he ended up becoming a video game developer as a career. And it, so the son had figured out how to align his values with his actions. His actions were playing the games. His value was, I really enjoy this. I'd like to do this for a living. And he found alignment there. Now, perhaps you or I would look at that and go, gosh, dang, what a waste of time. And that's certainly what the dad did. But that's that's our values. And we're imposing you know, that upon this other person who has who's found a way to make his value judgments work for him. Yeah, guilty as charged. You know, I mean, it's hard to say too, when it comes to our children, you know, do they really know where they're going? I mean, I like to play video games too when I was a boy. Um, I didn't think I had any thought of making a living at that. I didn't even know what that looked like. I couldn't even imagine that. And I think the way technology has changed that there's probably more of an awareness of those possibilities than there were when this was something that we, you know, when I was younger that we did. I don't think we thought about that, that we weren't, the technology just wasn't there at our fingertips. Yeah. I mean, I think the the bigger point uh, is that we we really don't know for certain what our kids or our spouses or our other acquaintances value judgments lie and so there's this, it's actually kind of a difficult thing to navigate, to be honest, like how, how, we, how we judge time usage. Because honestly, there are community judgments about this that tend to make a lot of sense to me. For instance, you know, you brought up social media. I think in, in general, the larger community would agree that too much social media is, is not a good thing. And, and what is too much? That's a very subjective phrase on its own. But when when we attempt to you know place that upon another person i think we're doing that out of ignorance for the ways in which we ourselves are out of alignment with our own values and maybe we're doing that out of a a sense of insecurity i i really don't know um so it, maybe it's just hearkening back to the old adage of mind your own business i don't know yeah it's sticky though when you're when you're talking about your kids right totally. because and 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 again you know with social media can be uh, addictive it can be harmful video gaming can be addictive it can be harmful and then so so can other things that you don't think of or that most people wouldn't think of uh, with any kind of negative connotation at all and yet they can be i mean look you can drink too much water we all probably need to drink more water than we're drinking but you can drink too much water and it can be harmful right i just went and listened to this guy speak the other day um he's this he's this iron man guy that ran 50 uh, iron man races in 50 states in 50 days an amazing accomplishment a world record feat and in order to do that he had to completely ignore all of the good advice that came to him from associates family doctors whoever telling him that you know you're going to die trying this and he nearly did but having accomplished that that has become his livelihood now it's just interesting that Anything can be taken to an extreme and potentially be harmful. Anything. And yet... Or it can be a boon. Or, or, and I was just going to say that. And yet, 
those who are tremendously successful in life tend to be people who take things too far in one area, you know, <laughs> for, for better or worse. It is an interesting phenomenon. Yeah, your story reminded me of uh, another ultra athlete, uh, uh, Rich Roll. I, I don't think we're talking about the same no. athlete. I know Rich Roll's story. And oh, no, sorry, I'm not thinking of Rich Roll. He's another one. He's another one. But I'm actually oh, thinking David of Goggins? the Navy SEAL, David, yeah, David Goggins, who who ran on a broken foot or something. I mean, you just think this is just this is just not smart. Right. <laughs> this is just dumb. Right. <laughs> and yet he had something to prove to himself and to and, you know, he just he's unstoppable. That guy, he knows from experience that there's no amount of pain that will stop him from doing what he wants to do. Yeah, this this guy I'm talking about, he, he's nicknamed the Iron Cowboy. And his name is James Lawrence. And when I went and listened to him speak, you know, I would never try to repeat what he did. But I think that anyone who listens to him comes away feeling inspired by what he did. And yet, none of them will try it, more than likely. And for good reason, because it's death-defying and crazy. But yet, he did. Well, and, and it, may not, it may not even align with, with their values. I think we can take away from, a, from an example like that that whatever it is that our values are, that we can achieve them, that we can, if we, if we spend our time, right, that we can achieve them. And again, we have to be careful because if our, if our values, if we think they're, because you can think something is going to make you happy or, or fulfilled or satisfied, and you can actually be wrong. It's not like you've never had a thought and you've been, and you've never been wrong about it, right? So, you can pursue the values and reach them successfully and still not be happy. Hopefully you learn a lesson than that and you realign. And again, that's part of the conversation, right? Is about realigning and, and assessing our values and checking in with ourselves, right? Yeah, it'd be interesting to talk to a guy like, you know, David Goggins or this Iron Cowboy and just say, where did this begin? Like, why? You know, because with this Iron Cowboy guy, for instance, he said he was not like a professional athlete. He was a regular middle-aged guy. I think he started this 50-50-50 challenge when he was 39. And then he followed it up when he was my age, now 45, with a uh, 100 Ironman in 100 days in his home state. He didn't travel for that one, but 100 Ironman in 100 days. That's 26 miles running, 2.5 miles swim, 112 mile biking in one day, every day for 100 days straight. Totally insane. So, it you know, is. it's like what moves someone – what, what's that first step you take towards that where you say, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and do this? Like, what is the value judgment that you've made that puts you in a position to make that kind of a leap and go for it like that? It's, it's, it's just interesting. And so I don't think we can say because no, we, we, we haven't, we don't have that value, right? But, but it points to something, right? And it is about our values. Well, okay. Let me we take you as time. an example. And I hope you don't mind me saying okay. this because I think it's Not at all. fairly benign, but. Last year, you read over 200 books. I, That's right. I don't know anyone who's done that other than you. I mean, I'm sure they're out there. There's these people that are just nuts about books. Well, there's a the guy who inspired me to do it. <laughs> there you go, right? And, and so that's, a, that's something where you set out to do something based on a value that you held, but you held the value first. Is that accurate? Sure, yeah. I wanted to read more books. But what, I valued reading books and I wanted to read more more books. Was that the outcome all by itself? I mean, was that the value judgment going in all by itself? I want to read more books. Or was there something, I mean, obviously there's associated knowledge that comes with it. What was the, what was the intention you put into that on the front end? What do you mean by intention? 
What, what was it's it on the front end? What was it you hoped to accomplish? Just reading books? Well, I hope to. I hope to. Yeah, I hope to read the books. I hope to spend more time in books because it's funny because you can, you you have this goal to read 200 books, and there's so many times again reevaluating and reassessing our goals and our our values, right? Putting in the time and thinking about it and taking the time to think about it. You realize, I mean, you start to get into is this what's a book, right? I mean, do you have is it 200 pages or is it something whatever's between two covers? And I've looked at, and you know, there are longer books and there are shorter books and there's an average length. And I had to, you know, at some point you think, well, have I met this goal no matter how you look at it? If I just, if I go by average number of pages, did I do it? If I go by number of, you know, actual volumes read, did I do it? And can somebody say, look, you know, I have a friend that likes to joke with me, Travis. We've had Travis on the show to talk about Dante. Travis asked me, were there lots of pictures, Chris? <laughs> right? What do you mean by a book? And so sometimes you can see that actually your goal is dumb in some sense, right? Because it's 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 maybe the wrong goal. Well, I'm glad you said and it maybe, because honestly, my initial thought is if you set out to read 200 books, you can just go to your local children's bookstore and and you can you can accomplish <laughs> that goal. But like, what is it you're hoping to get out of it? What's the value? Yeah. And so for me, for me, it's the it's the knowledge. There's so many books that I want to read. And I noticed that I was spending a lot of time, more time that I wanted to spend on social media. And so I read on social media one day that in the time that you spend on social media, you could read 200 books here. And I thought, really? I reposted it and I signed off <laughs> and I actually relapsed and came back on social media. And then I went off again and I haven't really been on social media for five years now. I recently signed in when a friend was in the hospital and I couldn't reach him and wanted to see if I could reach his family so I could get in touch with him. And, and I've kept, you know, I like that Facebook Messenger is separate from Facebook so I can still stay in touch with people, but not to be, you know, not to be scrolling and not really getting anything, anything out of it. And then there are the groups, you know, groups are different. You, you could participate in groups, but I just found that the, there are just these arguments that just don't go anywhere. And I thought I could be learning something. And so I just, I wanted to spend more time learning. I, learning has always been a value of mine. And I've always gone to books for learning. And that's just part of my experience from, you know, from the time that I was a little boy. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, it's a profitable exercise to at least take an inventory of what is important to you and set out with intention to accomplish or to align your actions with your values. Yeah. And I've shifted my goal and I've talked to other readers about this. You know, again, Travis, Travis thinks I'm reading too many books that I should spend as much, not as much time, sorry, three times as much thinking about the book as reading it. And, and that I can't do that if I'm reading this many books. And that may be, that may be a good point. That's something I thought about over the summer. I didn't read any books. Well, okay. I, I translated a book. So I fo I spent all of my time focused on one and, and I say book, you know, this is again, back to that, what is a book? This is actually a book in medieval terms. It's what we would think today of, uh, think of today as a chapter. So it was about 21 pages of medieval Arabic that I translated into English. Well, that's a close reading. That's a really close reading. I had lots of time to think about that because I did not engage with any other reading whatsoever, except for maybe a couple of things that were closely related to it. And even then I, I tried to stay away from 
the same subject from a different author so that the ideas of another author wouldn't get in the way of what I was looking at in this author. So that's a close reading. That's one book or one chapter all summer long. Yeah, you've kind of you've brought up a parallel discussion that we could possibly have about focus and and being present to what you're actually doing and making that the main thing that you're doing. We've we've had many discussions in the past about being present and and obviously this is a very contemplative practice to try to be present to the task that you're doing and not get distracted by by multiple tasks at once even though there's value in that as well. How how do you go about doing something like a a translation of a, a mid, medieval text that requires so much attention when you've got things pulling you in many directions? That's a really good question. I, and I definitely wanted to talk about this idea of multitasking, the idea of being present to the thing at hand and, and the pros and the cons. And again, I go back and forth about these things too. But to answer your question, you know, doing something like that was something that I found that I couldn't do because it does require such intense concentration for more than a couple of hours. I would, I could say a couple hours a day, or I could say maybe I could do it for a couple hours in the morning and then again in the afternoon. Now I have all these other responsibilities too, right? Even uh, in the summer, I didn't have all the required reading. I, I assigned my kids 600, about 600 pages a week of reading that I have to then do too and be able to spend time, you know, three hours a week in a seminar style discussion with them of their reading and then do my reading on top of that, trying to work on a PhD, doing this translation work, this kind of thing. So in the summer, I didn't have that reading. And I also chose, I, I just thought, you know what, I can meet I can meet my 200 goal book, even if I don't read any books all summer long. I thought I could do that. And I, and I still think I can. Uh, and I can also, you know what, I can choose to let that goal go anytime. It's something that I, I really actually considered going to a book a day this year. And I started off the first, I think the first six months of the year, I read a book a day uh, this year. And then I said, you know, that, that's not what I'm going to do. I just, you have to be able to say, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I'm just reevaluating. And a couple hundred books a year is sort of a, I kind of found my a pace at first, you know, when, when someone said you could do that, I thought, how do I do that? And I just started with about 52, you know, one a week. And then I worked my way up to 104. And then from there, you know, went up to, I, don't, I can't remember if I did 150 or went straight to 200. But the point is, I kind of found my groove and I don't know that I need to read. And then again, you back to this question of, are you going to not pick a shorter book because you can read it one day? And I actually got a lot of benefit, by the way, from, and this is, has everything to do with focus and with intentionality. I found that if I could focus on something and finish it in one day, that that was a whole different experience. And even if it meant choosing something shorter so that I could be sure to get it done, that I got so much out of that. I got a lot out of that. Of all the books in high school that I read that were assigned in English class, the one that I remember best is Grapes of Wrath because I procrastinated so badly with it that I read it in one day, the very last day that I could possibly read it to finish my report. <laughs> and so it took me like nine hours or whatever, but I read the whole book in one day. I think it was like 380 pages or something. Anyway, um, but there's something But it sounds to like it was, it was a good experience, right? Yeah, I loved it. There is something to, yeah. yeah. I used to read, so that was part of this goal too, Riley, is I used to read into, you know, I'd read 40 books at a time. And so it became this, what I've found that is, as I've tried to meet this goal is that I focus on one book at a time, usually. Maybe there's a couple, again, sometimes I'm assigning my kids a couple of books and 
But even then, if I have a whole week and I've gotten to a point now where I've been able to been able to read a couple hundred page book in, in a day or two, then I can still, um, you know, focus on one at a time. And I find that beneficial. Well, let's let's shift gears back to this commercial again, this uh, family, isn't it about time? And I just find that an, an interesting marketing message, if you want to call it back then, because there's there's another level to it, which is what we're discussing now. And that's being present to what is most important for us, uh, whether yeah. that's who we're with or what we're doing. And what do we risk when we're not present to our current circumstances or, or the people we're with? And the first thing that comes to my mind is where did the time go? And, and, and when you think about uh, your kids, you know, if you have kids, they grow up so fast. And if you're not present, you know, you missed it. You blink and you missed it. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking of some of the best memories I have with my kids are pretty simple moments. They're, they're not extravagant, amazing occurrences. They're not anything miraculous. It is really the time when you just decided... I'm going to give this kid a straight hour right now. And that that's not a lot, obviously, but I'm just saying a lot can be accomplished in a small amount of time. Last night after uh, my son's soccer game, which my other kids all attended, after the game was over, uh, we're driving home and we're like, hey, let's go, let's go play some Frisbee golf. Well, there's a little nine-hole Frisbee golf course, or I guess it's called disc golf, not Frisbee golf. It's right by my house. And so we just decided to go out there and just, you know, walk this nine holes and throw a disc around. And it because it was unexpected, especially for the younger kids, I think they're the ones that enjoyed it the most. And maybe it's something they'll remember every time they drive by the disc golf course, you know. Um, and so, so it's just very interesting how easily memories can be created doing pretty simple things, pretty really mundane things. What's well, about quality, not quantity, right? Mm-hmm. We live in a world in which quantity reigns. You know, that's something that I think it's I think it's a natural result of the scientific revolution, and and so quality sometimes gets forgotten about while we focus on quantity. And this conversation is about quality. Yeah, I- it's not about you know, it's not about. I think about the first, the first. I won't say the first meditation teacher I ever had, you know, not my first experience of someone teaching me how to meditate, but the first successful one. And that was, that was Ron Adair. I don't know if you know Ron Adair. Ron Adair told me, if you take, if you focus on your breath for one breath, that's a meditation. Now you're always breathing, but it's the focus, right? If you just focus on your breath and you do this for one breath, that is a meditation. And boy, you can find if you're busy, that just pausing to, to, you know, to give that kind of attention to your breath for one breath really makes a difference. Oh, absolutely. It, it really does. Now, of course, spending more time is even more valuable, but it's not, it's not, it's still not about quality. It's about quantity. I'm sorry. It's still not about quantity. It's about quality. Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, we had this last weekend, um, about an hour before my son's football game, but we had to drop him off early for warm-ups and all this game prep stuff they do in football. And so I took my other son, his twin, for a drive around Park City. And I, I worked in Park City for 12 years. I know the city well, and I also grew up doing a lot of hikes and skiing and fishing around that area. And so I decided to take my nine-year-old 
on this this little walk down a creek that I knew of that used to have some big trout in it. So we start walking down it. Well, it turns out the county had improved that and made it not a uh, primitive trail, but like a full-on trail. So there was tons of people there. Anyway, we get to this one point about halfway through this trail, and there's there's a little uh, artificial stand there, and it says on it, they've got it carved into the wood, it says, place your phone here and have a seat. And so I took my phone out of my back pocket and put it there, and I grabbed my son, and there was a, a cut log where we sat down on it uh, next to a, that small stream. And for one minute, I said, hey, uh, Holden, that's my younger son's name, Holden, let's, let's close our eyes and just try to try to catalog all the sounds we can hear. He said, okay. So we closed our eyes for one minute, and then we just kind of did a little assessment, I guess, of, of all the things that we heard. And I was, I was kind of surprised, uh, in a good way, of all the different sounds he heard over the top or underneath the, you know, this little brooklet that was probably making the majority of the sound. He, he named birds. He named wind rushing through the leaves. He named some people that had passed behind us on the trail with you know, their, their bike tires making sounds or their chains. He heard conversations in the distance. There was, he said he heard a leaf drop. And I'm like, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to take your word for that. (laughs) How about that? But uh, I just was struck by how being present to what we were doing at that moment and being fully in that moment allowed us, you know, a measure of joy and, and maybe even personal revelation about, about our surroundings, about the world that we live in. And the thing that it brought to mind for me the most was this, this idea of a still small voice. And that's how the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is described as a still, small voice. How that voice can come to you in the most mundane of tasks and speak to you in that moment, but unless you're listening for the sound of a leaf falling, you're going to miss it. And that takes real focus on, on the moment. It takes presence. Yeah, and that that was a meditation too you described there, wasn't it? Oh, it fully was. That's another form of meditation, yeah. Yeah. So I've got this strange question, and maybe maybe it fits into this category, maybe it doesn't. But there's this phenomenon lately of people who are way into ASMR, this autonomous sensory meridian response. These are videos that have certain sounds that are pleasing, for them that are just random stuff like, you know, crinkling up paper and how that triggers an autonomous response, an autonomous sensory response that is pleasurable for them and how they get really into specific sounds, whether it's whispering lightly in their ear on a microphone, whether it's that crinkling of paper or or the rustling of, of leaves with your hands. So there's those. And then there's also these videos where, you know, you see people like pressure washing a sidewalk. And you're like, what, what is this about? Why are people, these videos get millions and millions and millions of hits, people watching of sidewalk getting pressure washed. I can't think of a more mundane thing than pressure washing a sidewalk. And yet it's so satisfying for some people. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of those videos that somebody noticed that kids would just stand and stare at construction workers doing their jobs. 
indefinitely you right. know and so they decided to make videos and this is back you know before even dvds and you could buy video cassettes of construction sites you know of happenings road construction whatever it's the same idea right you just get so it, it's it's almost like a trance state that you go into isn't it yeah and i think there's something deeper there that that maybe we just pass over and think oh that's just kids being obsessed with big trucks and you know construction equipment. No, I think it's something else. And I think it's the same thing that possibly relates to this, you know, pressure washing of sidewalks or painting an old fence or or whatever. There's something there that is more than just quote unquote satisfying video. It's actually, there's something uplifting or pleasurable about that. And, and it's on a deep level. I mentioned to you in our pre-show discussion that I find ironing clothes meditative. And I don't actually iron a lot of clothes. This is maybe, you know, a Sunday shirt ironing or something. It's just, but the experience, if I'm if I'm just doing that and, and not necessarily listening to a book or something, sometimes I listen to books when I'm doing things like ironing or cooking or cleaning or things like that, you know, but, but if I'm just ironing, there's something so satisfying about it and and you mentioned something in connection to creativity and not just creativity but to our power to to create order out of chaos which is a godly power that's part of our nature yeah in the past you've mentioned doing the dishes has been meditative for you and i think it's almost the same thing you're you're taking something that's a mess and you're you're applying your effort towards making it orderly again and it's i think there really is something to this riley i feel the same way when i make the bed yeah. And, and and I teach my kids, you know, that this is that we're being gods when we do these things, right? That that we're bringing order to chaos. And that's godly. That's the creation, right? So, what do you think's going through a kid's head when he stands in a trance staring at a construction site as he watches the orderly, you know, uh the orderly construction of some building or a home? Do you think there's something involuntary there where they're they're hearkening back to a prior experience they've had or something deeply biological that connects them to this creating of order? I can't really say, Riley, but I, I think there's one thing I can say, and that is that they they obviously have a sense of awe. And we use the word awesome too much. It's overused and and it's really not understood. You know, that we don't have a sense anymore of what that means. It is truly awesome to them to see these, not just big trucks, but the, let's let's face it, those big trucks, those big trucks are pretty awesome, right? But to see all these goings on and the 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 movement of all these moving parts and the the symphony that that is of everything coming together and and by the way, I, I don't know, I don't know that they need to see the completion of the task, but I'm reminded of a, my own experience of going to my brother-in-law's ranch once where we went, my wife and I and our kids and my in-laws and just family members, we went to build a fence. And we had breakfast, we went out and started working. And we worked until lunchtime and we were called into lunch. And we went back out and we did it again uh, for the rest of the day. And at, in the beginning, at the, at the beginning of the day, no fence. At the end of the day, fence. And you know that you made that happen. Right, that there was no fence, and now there's a fence, and and it was your agency, and your effort that produced that. Th that's deeply satisfying. I mean, and I think that's why people who work 
manual jobs, manual labor type jobs, have a higher level of satisfaction with their work, even though it may be tough work, um, you know, physically. But if you ask someone who works, for instance, in the trades, what's your job satisfaction level like? Do you enjoy your work? They'll say, you know, I don't always love, and I can say this from experience, having worked with my dad who's been a contractor for, you know, 50 years. Um, they don't always enjoy it when they're doing the work, but they always look at the outcome with a certain amount of satisfaction and pride in that. And I think that comes from participating in that creative process. And and really anything can be creative. And a lot of times it just takes that that effort and concentration. You know, Riley, this reminds me of a, there's a, a TED Talk and there's an article and the article became a book and I'm guessing the article came before the TED Talk too. It's Shop Class as Soulcraft by Matthew Crawford. Have you seen it? I haven't, huh? It's it's worth a look, you know, and what this uh, what this guy's showing is, and, and I think this is why those workers are more satisfied because if you work in an office, it's really today in today's right in today's information economy, it's really kind of hard to see what your work actually produces, right? Is there is, is there nothing tangible, or is there anything tangible that you can point to and say, my work produced that? For many, there isn't, and so the you know the guy who builds the fence or the guy who, you know, builds anything, right? He, he can see, right? Uh, uh, someone who's, who's making something with their own hands can see. You know, my mother used to sew clothes for my, my daughter, my, not my daughters, my sisters. And, you know, there's something, you, there, again, there's this agency and there's this, you, you put yourself into it and you produce something and you create something and you manufacture something and it's tangible and there's something about that is that is so satisfying. And that's why people, and, and if they don't get it at work, this is a really good idea, is to have a hobby where you can actually, even if it's building a model, and that's a contemplative practice too. And this is why. It, you're right. I think with the conversation we've had, you could see how just building a model is a contemplative practice and brings all these benefits that we're talking about, right? So next time our kids are spending entirely too much time playing with Legos. Jump in. <laughs> instead of saying, hey, shouldn't you be doing X, Y, Z, fill in the blank? Maybe we let them continue to create and, and be in that space. Yeah, and you jump in. You, so you let them do it and you do it with them. Now you kill two birds with one stone, right? You're spending time with your kids and you're building something. I love it. Amen. The Lego idea reminds me of something again the in the world in the world that we live in things you know it's like you you have you have these Lego sets now where the idea is to and they're so expensive right you you're going to build this one thing in this box you will find all the pieces to make the thing that's pictured on the box and there goes your agency and there goes your creativity so i you know the original idea of the Legos was you can build anything and it comes out of your own imagination. I think there's something to that too, Riley. What do you think? Well, that's why I always preferred Lincoln Logs um, over those sets. You know, I, I don't want to be directed how I have to build something. I just want to have various pieces that I can kind of multi-purpose use anywhere I want to. And so, yeah, I was more of a Lincoln Log guy myself. <laughs> Plus, it seems less tedious. You see your work 
a little faster. <laughs> but no, yeah, I remember those. I like those too. I get what you're saying, and, and the creativity of it uh, is is largely being replaced with, you know, here's here's what you have to build because these are the pieces that you get, and all it takes is losing a couple pieces, and all of a sudden you can't build what it is you're supposed to. So, I like the creativity. And there really is something to this idea of creativity, exercising our creativity. And and we talk about creativity and we don't think in any sense, I don't think we usually think in in the sense of the creation in Genesis when we talk about creativity, but I'm trying to tie the two together. Do you see what I'm doing? I really think that, that that kind of creativity that produces something that takes pieces and puts them together, that takes, you know, something and, and makes something else that that is something that manifests our divine nature. And that's why it's so deeply satisfying. One of the things my dad still does, which is crazy, I mean, he's been doing it for about 40 years, is he'll take his leftover construction materials, whether it's broken tiles or remnants of carpet or whatever, and he'll turn them into pieces of art. And he used to actually sell these. He would, um, for instance, he'd have all these pieces of scrap uh, carpet, and he would he would come up with an image in his head of, uh, I think one of them was called the progress of man. And it was essentially a picture of a dodo bird with wheels as legs. And he, he made this out of various pieces of carpet that he cut out and then glued together into a kind of like a tapestry. It, it looked no different than a rug on the ground, but you would hang it on your wall essentially. And he continues to do that. And, you know, when we go down and visit him, they've got a they recently just sold their little mini farm in Colorado, but um, he would go out to the warehouse with my kids, his grandkids, and they would just pick through old broken pieces of tile, and they would put together works of art that sort of resembled mosaics um, of different different forms and pictures. Sometimes they were random, and he would teach them how to, you know, uh, make them permanent, like gluing them together and, and grouting them in and stuff, but that my kids remember that being create uh creative with essentially throw away garbage with their grandfather yeah that's quality time too right there with grandpa you know it there's something about us that we have to do this right there i don't know of any other species that could get in because i'm connecting this with our values now is there any other species that's going to get into an argument that looks something like this that color wall doesn't match with that color floor. I mean, we really think this. We think these things. We think these things are important. They're a part of who and what we are. Hmm. Yeah, I was trying to think while you were asking that if there are other species that do that. And the only thing I can think is, you know, there are certain associations that are made with color by uh, different, you know, species of animals or whatever. And how if if the colors aren't right or if they're wrong, they'll react one way or the other. You think about, you know, poison dart frogs and stuff that are very brightly colored and how that that might be seen as a risk for animals. But in terms of like the mental process of connecting one thing to another, as you've described, I I think you're right. I don't see that. Yeah, you can see, you know, it's interesting to bring the the two ideas together. I've seen on one of these, I can't remember what, what it was called, one of these nature shows, there are these birds that to you know to attract a mate the male bird will actually get together all kinds of stuff and in 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 today's world that includes trash so it, this is a bird that's in a sense like your like your father right he's actually taking whatever he can find around and and again 
probably originally in the in the natural world without man-made things they were all natural things but now the man-made things are included and if he sees something that's really bright and attractive that's man-made he's going to use it to attract his mate he builds this little sculpture almost that's actually a place for the female to enter into it's really interesting but it's it's still different it's still different from what from we do as human beings because there's something about us that there's this drive to create the the bird is doing this you know there's there's no real originality other than there's just different materials on hand this is something that is that the bird is doing instinct instinctively right it's by instinct that it acts whereas we act again on agency and so we get to choose our actions and so this brings us back to values and it brings us back to time and spent and you know there there are two things here that we're talking about right one is what are my values and two are are, am i aligning how i spend my time with my values yeah and i I guess one aspect of this conversation that maybe we've touched on maybe we haven't is that there are a lot of ways to exercise our agency doing something that we don't immediately see the connection with our values, but they can nevertheless be there if the intention going in is correct. Just having the value itself might help us to align our actions with the value. Can you give me an example of what you have in mind? Yeah. So I think I mentioned that I went on a mountain bike ride the other day. That That's something that is pretty much a purely leisurely activity for me. I I mean, I get some exercise out of it and maybe that's a value, but I don't go mountain biking for the exercise anymore. Um, I, I do other things to get, you know, my, my exercise in. I like to lift weights, which is another conversation we can have. But, uh, as far as mountain biking goes, I go just for the pleasure of it. Right. Well, one of my overarching values lately has been to see in the world, in nature, my God, to see God in all the things, all the mundane things, all the little things. And it it seems that lately, the last couple of years, when I go on a mountain bike ride, I'm so much more tapped into that just by by virtue of being in nature. And for instance, this last week I went on a ride and I got a little bit winded. It was a steady, long uphill climb and I, and I needed a breather. So I jumped off my bike and decided to lay down in the fall leaves. It was nice and cool. I was under a canopy of trees that gave me some shade and a chance to cool off and get a drink. And as I looked around, it's almost like I had this kind of revelatory epiphany that there are so many manifestations of God in front of me. I mean, millions and millions of leaves, and under the leaves are twigs and broken branches and and there's bugs under that, and then there's dirt and earth under that, and I just got this sense of the immensity of creation and how I'm just such a small, seemingly insignificant part, but not insignificant because all this stuff was created for my enjoyment and for my pleasure. And I don't know, it was there, there was no great revelatory truth that came out of it other than I just had this sense of God's love, just being in that type of environment and experiencing it the way I was with pure presence. So the presence aspect, which has been an overall overarching goal of mine, was manifested in a task that wasn't in, you know, at the outset anyway, it wasn't intended to be 
what it became. Yeah, and yet what greater revelatory experience could you possibly hope for than a manifestation of divine love? In such simple things, you know, in such a simple moment, and it's just about presence, right? It's about presence. It's not about quantity. It's about quality. It's about a depth of experience that comes with being fully present in the now. You know, last week we had Phil McLemore on the program, and he, I think in the podcast he mentioned this book that is a favorite of his by Eckhart Tolle called The Power of Now. I believe he mentioned it in there. If not, it was in the pre-show discussion. Nevertheless, it's a favorite of his, and it's one that you and I have both read. One of the things that uh, Tolle focuses in on is is being aware and open to the now. And one of the most important ways you do that is by focusing on on breath. And, you know, I, it, I don't think it's inconsequential that the reason I got off my bike to experience this moment of rest and, and realization, it was brought on by heavy breathing. Like I was, I was pretty spent. I was really paying attention to how much I was breathing. And I'm like, okay, I need a break. I'm about to, <laughs> about to bust right here. So, um, there's something that, that breathing does to draw us into the now and, and be fully present with it. Sometimes it's, a place that's silent where the only thing you can hear is your breath or it's one of the main things. Um, sometimes it's in darkness um, where, you know, again, silence, darkness, uh, where really you can focus in on just yourself. You're not distracted by other things. Um, but in any case, there's a, there's a deep connection between presence and breathing. I'd love for you to share, Riley, what you were telling me pre-show about weightlifting. You mentioned a few minutes ago, that you might talk about this. And I'd love for you to do that. You know, that you made a connection between mindfulness and weightlifting. You told me that you hadn't made before. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not something that maybe I've noticed when I set out to start lifting weights six, seven years ago for then back then it was more about just getting in shape. But as the weights got heavier, one of the things that I noticed is that you had to be very focused and one of the most important things you focus on when you're lifting, especially free weights, is is your breath. And taking deep breaths, holding your breaths, creating rigidity in your core, um, they call it intra-abdominal pressure, is a way to safeguard yourself from, from injury. And so now that I've been doing this for a number of years, it's become second nature to me to know how to lift things safely and most efficiently or effectively is is by breathing properly. And so when I go to the gym, I used to go with a group of friends who I love. They're good buddies. I still go lift with them occasionally, but for the most part, I lift by myself. And it helps me to really stay intently focused on the task at hand and, and really be drawn into that present moment so that I can avoid injury, number one but also so that I can accomplish the goal, which is to lift this item, whatever, you know, off the ground or over my head or over my chest or whatever the case may be. So there's, there's a real sense of presence that comes from being intently focused like you have to be when you're, when you're lifting weights. Yeah, you know, I don't know that I'll stop listening to books when I'm cooking, cleaning, ironing, driving, shopping, whatever. Actually, shopping, that doesn't work really well. It has to be something that you can do without really thinking, you know, but 
but I think that we have shown that maybe, you know, we couldn't say necessarily that there's something wrong with doing this, you know, with listening to something, whether a podcast or a book or whatever, while you're doing the dishes or ironing, or I don't even know if it would work with weightlifting, right? Because sometimes more intent, uh, more intense concentration is demanded. But even if, even if there wouldn't be anything wrong with it, there certainly is something right with focusing on the task at hand. You know, one of my favorite authors in the contemplative space from the Buddhist tradition is Thich Nhat Hanh. And I think I read about 50 of his books last year. He has uh, written a lot of books. Wait, that's not true. I think I read 50 books on Buddhism and a number of them were his. He has written over 50 books himself. I have not read all of them. But the point is, he often, and by the way, I was told by someone who, someone else who reads Thich Nhat Hanh, because she was surprised that I was reading all these books of Thich Nhat Hanh. She says, once you've read one, you've read of all. And I thought, well, yeah, sure. But it helps to get a reminder and you can reread a book. And this is another back to that conversation about books. Are you going to reread a book or are you going to read a new book so you can count it? And by the way, you can just count the reread, right? So now, now you have to think about these goals carefully because it can get really you have to think about why you're actually doing this. That's why I love the questions you asked me about it, Riley. But I, I read these books, and over and over, one of the themes that I picked out is that Thich Nhat Hanh would say, when you're washing the dishes, wash the dishes. When you're walking, walk. When you're eating, eating eat. Yeah. yeah, just just be present to what you're doing. And there certainly is something powerful to this, to actually being present to whatever it is you're doing, even if it's just walking. And he goes beyond that, because when I think about walking, I remember him saying that you should walk as though your feet are kissing the earth. Again, that's a level of, of, of presence that's above and beyond. I'm walking and I'm in my monkey mind and I'm not really thinking about what I'm doing. And I don't even, by the way, am I really even thinking, right? There's just this chatter in my head that's going on that seems like it's if I'm not actually focusing on something, it's what happens naturally, right? It's something, it's the default setting is that monkey mind that's always having this, this little conversation that's going on in your head. And you, I'm not talking about crazy stuff, guys. This is something where, where if you're saying, what's he talking about? There's no voice in my head. You probably said that in your head. That's the voice I'm talking about. That's always judging and, and agreeing or disagreeing. Um, but if we actually intentionally focus on whether it's on our breath, whether it's on having our feet kiss the earth as we walk, it gets us out of that monkey mind and it brings us into, you know, closer to our true self. And I think that's another reason why this kind of presence and mindfulness is so important. Yeah, I, I remember one of the most important things I read from Thich Nhat Hanh that I, I, I've actually contemplated this and meditated upon it plenty of times is, is this idea of eating to understand the source of all your food. And, and I know many people have taken this to a level, uh, especially, you know, in the last few years that I probably haven't or won't. But when he chooses food, he thinks of the, he thinks of the source of the food. And, you know, it's the same thing as kissing the earth with your feet. He's thinking about each maceration as a connection with his, the food source and that that's a level of mindfulness that uh, I've not I've not reached at all. But I, I can see value Rather, in I that. 
Yeah, I, I can too. I Now, that's not something I've run into somehow reading his books. T- tell me a little bit more about that. Is it is he thinking about the people who grew the food? Is he thinking about the earth and the sunshine and the rain, all of the above? Yeah, all of that. And and I don't remember even specifically which book it came out of because I read a few of his, but I, that's something that stuck with me. And he also connected it to uh, vegetarianism, um, you know, in, sure. in the sense that, you know, eating a, eating a living animal uh, was somehow you know, immoral. Uh, that's another conversation for another day, but that was the level of mindfulness that he put into eating. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, uh, without going into great detail about that conversation that we can leave for another day, but even if you're, if you're going to eat an animal, right, if you're going to take another life, is this something that we do mindfully? Again, the question is, is it something you do mindfully? Are you aware I'm taking this life and I'm taking it in Thanksgiving, right? I mean, we, we certainly do that at Thanksgiving, but do we do that every time we take life to sustain our lives? And, and he made the same point. That's something to think about. That was something I remember from him as well, is him making that same point, not in a judgmental way, but just essentially exhorting people to really be mindful of the sources of their food and the impact it has you know, globally and on them in, uh, in, in particular. Yeah. So Riley, as we come to the close of our hour-long conversation, you've always been really good at making sure that after we've talked about something in the abstract and gone into details, that we had closed with some kind of call to action. So I'm going to pass the baton to you and ask you to to do that. The thing that's been present for me and as we've had this conversation and what has come out of it most of all is with awareness we get a connection with our creator that is on a level we're not quite used to when we're just going about our daily routine. And so the call to action for me and one that I think the guests could benefit or, or excuse me, our audience could benefit from the most is being present to the thing you're doing as a way of connecting with God and with the spirit. I mentioned this this example of hearing the still small voice in in the leaves on the ground and in the wind as you know I laid off the trail on my mountain biking ride or with my son sitting next to a creek I think that's possibly the best way you can connect with the spirit is by being aware that that still small voice is speaking to us in in very noticeable but you have to be tuned in ways and so the challenge that I would issue is is to be present. And with the intention of being close to God, I love that. I, I accept the challenge, Riley. So it's not just be present. It's be present with the intent to experience the divine. And it doesn't have to be in a natural setting where we can experience that. Even artificial, you know, man-made routine tasks, as you mentioned, like ironing your clothes, can reveal an aspect of of God or divinity to us, moving a wrinkled garment to a state of, of being ironed and clean and pressed can reveal the nature of creation for you. I mean, any mundane task can be revelatory for us if we go in with the intention of hearing the voice of God through that still small voice of the spirit. Indeed. It's been such a pleasure as usual, Riley, 
having this conversation with you, and, and we thank you, the listener, for joining us. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. See you next week. <laughs>